Why do millions of Americans choose to sleep on Boland Branch sheets? Is it the 100% organic cotton? Is it that they get softer and softer over time? Customers can't stop raving about these sheets, and there's no better time to try them for yourself or give them to someone you love. Right now, Bolin Branch is offering their best deals of the year, and you can get their incredibly soft sheets at incredibly low prices. Just go to bolinbranch.com to shop their best deals today. That's b o l l and branch.com today. See site for details. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. And I am so excited on this Tuesday to have not one but two incredible guests joining us in this hour on incredible topics. I've just been gone for a week, took the week off, and uh, especially because I'm my second cup of coffee, I am definitely uh, rejuvenated, rested, uh, relaxed, and uh, ready for action. Uh, Today, we have first up uh, in the first half of the hour, Catherine Gray. Catherine is a producer, an author, a speaker, and a podcast host. Her focus is to empower female entrepreneurs and being a woman who loves women who empower women, uh, being a female and an entrepreneur. uh, This is not just up my alley, but we have so many more women out there opening their own businesses, more women running for and winning elections. Uh, It it is definitely, I think, the year of the woman and continues to be as we're going to have the first female uh, vice president with Kamala Harris, vice president-elect. She enjoys working on socially conscious projects that are impacting the world in a positive way. Now, she and I were just talking off the air. Maybe you guys even saw a little bit of it on the air. Hello to those not just listening on radio and screen, uh, stream and podcast, uh, but also on uh, Periscope, on Twitter, Facebook Live, YouTube Live that can see us. Um, After a successful career as the top account executive in the country for a Miami-based cable advertising firm, she became a filmmaker and an entrepreneur with a focus on making a difference. Love that. Uh, She was working on launching a new original series for television called She Angels. It covers the exciting journeys of female entrepreneurs who win funding and mentorship at the She Angels Pitch Fest. Now, this is part of creating a global initiative to fund women around the world. In addition to this endeavor, recently she co-founded the creation of the She Angels Foundation, and that furthers the efforts in uh, generating a fund to support female-founded nonprofits uh, that are helping uh, women. Uh, To support her women's empowerment vision, she hosts the podcast series Invest in Her. It's a weekly live broadcast on YouTube, iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, and other popular podcast networks. And every week she interviews phenomenal female founders and funders. And the purpose of the show, to discuss ways to accelerate the funding of women and provide resources and inspiration to her listeners. You can also find her book, Live, Love, Thrive on Amazon. It tells true women's stories of adversity to triumph. I got to get that book. 
produced several award-winning films, including the very first documentary film about gay marriage called I Can't Marry You. It's been narrated by Ella Ella DeGeneres' wife, uh, mom, not wife, (laughs) her mom, Beth. It aired on PBS. I love her, too, by the way. Ellen and the mom uh, aired on PBS in more than 60 cities throughout the country. And additionally, Catherine and I bonded over just giving uh, TEDx talks. She just did it this past weekend. It's titled Fund Women Save the World. Put that little bookmark down, because when it comes out in a few weeks, it always takes a few weeks from when you put it out there uh, to uh, have the public watch it. The website for her foundation is sheangelsfoundation.org. On Twitter, the handle for her film series is at sheangelsseries. Please follow her there. Go to the website. Check out her TED Talk. Buy her book, I Can't Marry You. More than a pleasure to have with us, Catherine Gray. Catherine, thank you for taking the time. Good to have you with us uh, here in the uh, SoCal sunshine today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And I love your platform. And I, by the way, I loved your TED Talk. Uh, It was amazing. I can see we're both always for the underdog. So yeah, uh, I hope if anybody hasn't seen yours, they got to look that up. It was amazing. Oh, well, thank you. And I was just saying, uh, off the air, whatever, you and I post-COVID got to have a drink or coffee since we're not that far from each other. uh, Exactly. I would love that. I know we've been following each other around the country. Both have been in uh, Miami, New York, uh, LA, of course. And I think we were obviously both in uh, New York uh, at 9-11, unfortunately. So that was, uh, ugh, I heard you talking about that. It was such a, such a trying time to be in New York. So I was there at the same time you were. So we, we've just been kind of following each other around the country for sure. Well, I'm glad to have you here with us today. And uh, like I said, I look forward to that post-COVID cocktail or coffee. Um, today is Giving a Tuesday. And um, we now, I just mentioned, have Vice President-elect Kamala Harris on her way to the White House. Um, we, we still, though, have a 98% gap when you look at funding of women-led startups. Um, that, that is just another spotlight and more of a glaring indicator of not just income inequality, but gender income inequality, gender inequity, uh, and the unmet potential economic growth here in the United States. Um, so, uh, you know, out there, there are a lot of women, celebrities, especially who are helping to close that gap, that 98% gap in the funding of women entrepreneurs speak to us about that because it's a huge issue for voters and not just for women. Right. Well, and that is what my Ted talk is about. That's why it's called fund women, save the world is there are so many creations and cures and inventions that uh, rest in the hands of women and they're not getting the funding. So like you mentioned, we get less than 2% of venture capital funding. We get less than 15% of traditional funding like angel investing. Uh, It's ridiculous how little funding we get. And yet, like I said, women have all these game-changing ideas that could help save the planet and change the world. Uh, We must get behind them. Uh, I'm a big believer too that women need to get behind women So super successful women, Uh, we have more than 30% of the wealth in the world right now. That's trillions of dollars. We're in a position to get behind women's ventures uh, because people say to me, well, don't you want men to invest? I'm like, of course we do, but how's that been working for us? Uh, So we we do need to get behind each other, Um, but men do need to get behind their their daughters and wives and sisters and friends. And that's really what my platform is about. It's about how do we solve this underfunding issue? That's what my 
She Angels TV series is about, the Invest in Her podcast, um, everything I'm doing, uh, even the She Angels Foundation, which, you know, you mentioned today is Giving Tuesday. So we want to mention that we have our nonprofit arm. Uh, She Angels Foundation is member oriented. So women and men uh, are members. uh, And when they become a member, it's a tax deductible donation that goes to the grants that we give away to female founded nonprofits that are helping uh, women to thrive. Uh, I give you a couple of examples we just gave to uh, Molly Larkey's the People's Pottery Project that teaches women how to you know, uh, make pottery and make a living out of that, that are formerly incarcerated women right. that, you know, have a tough time getting back on their feet. She employs them and, and helps them learn that trade, which is awesome. Um, another one is Kat Cora's um, Chefs for Humanity. Uh, so we're giving a grant to that. She helps uh, a female chef learn how to uh, start their own restaurant business because only 7% of restaurants are owned by female chefs. Uh, so we need to level that playing field as well. So you could look about any, just about any industry, and we are totally underrepresented and definitely in the entrepreneurial world, way underfunded. And I always find it surprising that people are shocked by how little funding women get. Because let's say, when we say under 2%, we're saying men get more than 98% of the funding in the venture capital world. How crazy is that? But it's because people tend to invest in themselves. It's someone that they identify with. And so if we had more women in venture capital and in the angel investing world, we would have more women getting funding. Absolutely. I can hear yeah. it in your voice and just looking at everything you do. This is this is um, not just work for you. This is a passion. Um, why? Why are you so passionate about this particular subject? Why is this your mountain to die on? You know, I think we all get like a, a a download or a calling something. They always say, "What is it that angers you?" That's your what your purpose is on the planet, and that angers me that women are so underfunded because because it's going to impact the world if they don't get funded. Uh, like I said, they have the cures and creations and and inventions that could help save the planet. So. Let's fund women. Women have amazing ideas. They even tend to outperform their male counterparts uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship. So why not get behind women? Absolutely. Uh, We are going to take a break and we're going to be back because it is Giving Tuesday. Once again, I want to give that website, sheangelsfoundation.org. Like she said, you can become uh, a member. Uh, You subscribe. Uh, You're helping individuals. Uh, You're helping women. Um, I have a daughter. I want the future to look different than it does now uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, income inequality and the disparity in income and wages between uh, men and women and uh, the giving between uh, men and women to uh, male and female entrepreneurs. It's just not fair that women, you know, 98 percent of the money out there is going to the guys. Come on, let's change that. Let's level the playing field. You can also check out on Amazon Live, Love, Thrive. That is her book. Um, and uh, in addition, we'll be, uh, like I said, follow her on Twitter at She Angel Series. But it is uh, Giving Tuesday. So let's go to SheAngelsFoundation.org and start to give, not just with your heart and your mouth, but your wallet. We'll be back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. We are back. 
I'm Leslie Marshall. She is Catherine Gray, producer, author, speaker, podcast host, and her focus is to empower female entrepreneurs. It's Giving Tuesday, and I talked about you giving to the She Angels Foundation, and uh, we were talking about that, and we were talking about why. Also, her book, Live, Love, Thrive, you can find on Amazon, her film, I Can't Marry You, and uh, her TED Talk, her TEDx Talk, which you'll be able to see uh, shortly. Go to sheangelsfoundation.org to give and uh, follow at She Angels Series. Um, thank you for holding and welcome back. I, I wanted to ask you as a woman, because this is a frustration that I have as a feminist, um, and I think it's one of the reasons we haven't had a woman in the White House as a president or vice president, certainly uh, one of the reasons, sadly, that 2016 Hillary Clinton lost. And and that I, I think that women need to, to help women and empower women, like you said, and that we need to get out of each other's way and, you know, I know that I have a very strong, and I think a lot of women do, inner critic. And I think we also, some of us, uh, point that out and, and and project that onto other women and criticize them. Do you think that sometimes women are women's worst enemy? And we could totally turn that around when the majority of the population uh, here in the country, uh, you talk about incredible ideas that women have. Uh, you, you know, can you speak to that perhaps? Are, are women not being supportive of women enough? It's not just the guys that are blamed for this. Um, for those that just joined us, Catherine Gray is our guest. I mentioned that she's a producer, an author, a speaker, and a podcast host. And her focus is to empower female entrepreneurs. Uh, she enjoys working on socially conscious projects that are impacting the world in a positive way. She spoke before the break about somebody who takes uh, women who've been uh, convicted, um, have served their time. Uh, their ex-felons, and teaches them uh, how to do pottery so that they will have a skill, and further, how to open their own pottery shop uh, so that they can not only be artisans, uh, but that they can be business owners and entrepreneurs. Then there's another woman who takes chefs. Now, most chefs are men, even though you watch a lot of these shows where the women are winning. <laughs> uh, most um, chefs uh, out there are men. And uh, because of that, a lot of women who were chefs have a hard time finding the capital, um, whether from bank or private, uh, you know, uh, VC uh, firm or individual, uh, whether, you know, willing to give backing so that they can open their own restaurant and they can branch out on their own. And this is crucial during this time, not just because today's Giving Tuesday, but because we're in a pandemic where there are so many places closing, especially restaurants, um, why not give some opportunity and spread that money around? Uh, mentioned before that 98% of the funding for entrepreneurs goes to men. That means 2% or less of the money that is out there uh, to fund entrepreneurs that are female, um, that, that, that's beyond uh, not leveled. Uh, that's beyond uh, inequality. And that's an issue that voters care about, income inequality. But there's a gender gap and a gender, a gender inequality gap, not just because women don't make the same on the dollar. Women aren't being given the same access to the dollars to start their own companies, to be entrepreneurs. Um, I, I mentioned her career. She was a top account exec in the country for a Miami-based cable advertising firm. She became a filmmaker. Uh, an entrepreneur focusing on making a difference. And she certainly is with what she's doing. Uh, as I mentioned, she is working on launching a new original uh, series for television. 
It's called She Angels. It covers the exciting journeys of female entrepreneurs who win funding and mentorship at the She Angels Pitch Fest. Uh, It's part of creating a global initiative. This is not just about, hey, you know, here in California, hey, here in the United States, but worldwide, that we can fund women worldwide. And in addition to this, Catherine recently co-founded the creation of the She Angels Foundation, which we're talking about today on Giving Tuesday. And that would be to further the efforts, you're on your mark, <laughs> to further the efforts in generating a fund to support female-founded nonprofits that are helping women. Now, to support the women's empowerment vision, she hosts the podcast series, she has her own podcast series, Invest in Her. It is a weekly live broadcast on YouTube, iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, and other popular podcast networks. And every week, she interviews phenomenal female founders and funders. And the purpose of the show is to discuss ways to accelerate the funding of women and provide resources and inspiration to her listeners. She's written a great book on Amazon. You can find it called Live, Love, Live, Love, Thrive. That's Live, Love, Thrive on Amazon. It tells women's stories, true stories of women and uh, their adversity to triumph. I love that. I love That's why she and I uh, get along so well, I think. We love that underdog or that rags to riches story, uh, you know, the person who was under and, and, you know, and was able to come up on top. And I, I love that. And that's what her book, Live, Love, Thrive, does. Find it on Amazon. She also produced several award-winning films. Uh, her first uh, documentary, uh, it was the first documentary film about gay marriage called I Can't Marry You, narrated by Ellen DeGeneres' mom, Betty. It aired on PBS and in more than 60 nations, uh, excuse me, cities, not 60 nations, 60 cities throughout the nation. Additionally, she just gave a TEDx talk. She and I have that in common. She did this past weekend called Fund Women, Save the World. Well, I think you can. Uh, The website for her foundation, it is Giving Tuesday. I hope you'll give is sheangelsfoundation.org. And the handle for her film series is at sheangelsseries. Now, um, I talked about that 98% gap in funding of women entrepreneurs. And a lot of celebrities, female celebrities out there are helping to close that gap. And it's a huge gap, 98%. And like I said, it is Giving Tuesday. America has finally a VP on her way to the White House, finally a woman on her way to the White House with Kamala Harris as vice president-elect. But even though finally, after more than 200 years, we'll have a woman in the White House and not the number one, the two slot, we still have that 98% gap in funding of women-led startups. And that alone is a glaring indicator of the gender inequity and the unmet potential economic growth that could be tapped into here in the United States uh, of America. Uh, We had some technical issues, I believe, with uh, getting Catherine on. Um, We had her on and then we lost her. We're going to try and get her again. We're coming up, uh, 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 we're coming up to, uh, a break, but we're going to have to have her on the show again. We only had her for a few minutes. We have another guest coming up and we're coming up to break uh, shortly. Once again, like I said, Giving Tuesday, sheangelsfoundation.org. Please go there and give. Follow at sheangelsseries. And when her TED Talk comes out, Fund Women Save the World, check that out. Uh, Check out her film, I Can't Marry You, and pick up her book, Live, Love, Thrive on Amazon. I'm Leslie Marshall. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, our second guest will join us, but we will have Catherine back on the show, not today, but in the future to finish up her time. I like to have everybody get their fair, their fair amount of time. I'm Leslie Marshall. Stick around. Coming right back on this Giving Tuesday.
Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. And we are back with the second half of the show and our second guest in the hour. I'm glad to have her with us. She is Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo. She's a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering and the Department of uh, Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Also part of Johns Hopkins University's COVID-19 Testing Insights Initiative, they're working to fill the void of publicly accessible COVID-19 testing data. On Twitter, please follow her. Her handle is at Jennifer Nuzzo. That's J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R. Uh, N-U-Z-Z-O. Uh, Dr. Nuzzo, thank you uh, for uh, joining us. You did a wonderful uh, piece in the New York Times, an op-ed uh, that you wrote along with uh, Beth Blauer uh, entitled COVID-19 Data is a Mess. We Need a Way to Make Sense of It. Um, do you think that's why we get so many mixed reactions when we have polls, people people trusting or not trusting vaccines, approximately a third of Americans that say They'll, they'll have the vaccine when it comes out. A third say they won't. A third are undecided. Um, and then, uh, again, you know, people who have questions regarding the uh, reliability of the information coming out with regard to masks or social distancing. It, it's just such a fluid uh, a time. Um, so I, I'm glad to have you here today because I'm hoping that you can help us make sense of it. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, you wrote in your piece, COVID-19 data is uh, a mess, Right. Um, why, why is that? Is it because it's so fluid and, and doctors in the medical community are learning about this day by day a, as we go? Well, we were specifically addressing the topic of COVID-19 testing and the data that we're using to track our testing efforts. Um, you know, the case numbers, I think, are pretty solid. Obviously, uh, you use a test in order to identify, diagnose an infection and count that as a case. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of questions over um, the weeks and months about whether the, the case numbers are inflated, and I, and I absolutely don't believe that to, to be the case. I think there's probably more likely that we're missing a lot of infections that are out there. But testing is an important dimension of, you know, monitoring our overall response to this pandemic, and we're making a lot of high-consequence decisions. Um, for, you know, a long period of time, states were deciding whether they would quarantine people coming from other states based on the testing data mm -hmm. from those states. And what we found in our work is that, you know, we're really comparing apples to oranges because we don't have federal data standards for COVID-19 testing. Um, and so that's really what we called for in our um, op-ed was to, uh, you know, establish some national standards so that we can all be tracking the exact same thing so that we can gauge whether we're doing enough testing or if we have to, as is likely the case, a lot more testing for the size of the epidemic that we have. It's interesting you say that because, you know, I work on television as well as radio and hence my TV get up today. I was on earlier. And, and one of the things that we talked about was with regard to the vaccines, that state by state governors are going to make decisions based on what comes out of the CDC and the recommended guidelines today. Some will follow them. Some will not. Again, lack of uni uniformity across the board. We, I, I believe, uh, and I would imagine you do too, if you could speak to that, that we need to have a federal standard, uh, not just with regard to testing, but with vaccines, maybe this virus uh, completely, uh, because if we have states operating uh, you know, differently, then people are going to roam state to state maybe to get a vaccine or to avoid a vaccine, you know, if they, they this mandatory vaccination that comes out down the road. Um, is that part of the problem here? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, 
the reason why we're in this situation is in part because of our constitution and the constitutional authority for public health rests with the states. And so that's why you see different states doing different things. But when we have a national crisis like this, when we have a situation where the entire country is not safe until every state is doing well, we really need a national approach. This 50 state solution that we have where we just kind of hope all states have the resources they need and we hope that they're going to do okay is not working for us. And so, you know, we need to figure out how to, in the confines of our constitution, uh, achieve national standards. And, you know, there are ways to do that, incentives and, and other things, um, you know, and I think the states themselves would find it really valuable to be able to compare and track data like this. Um, otherwise, they're flying blind, not knowing what's, uh, you know, happening um, in, in their neighbors, uh, you know, in neighbor states or, you know, even other parts of the country. When you have a, a nation that uh, where there's a lot of travel, um, this is really uh, critical that we have a national picture of what's going on, not a 50 different state picture. My husband's a physician. He's an orthopedic surgeon, so he's in a very different uh, line of medicine than you are. But I asked him this, and I wanted to ask you as well. Um, governors are politicians, and politicians will make decisions for the health and well-being um, of their citizens, uh, many of which uh, will listen to medical professionals and, and the advice coming out of the CDC today with regard to the vaccine and who gets it first. Uh, some will not. Are you surprised? It, it, how does it make you feel as a physician that politicians are, in a sense, making health decisions and that some of these politicians are making these decisions with political motivation? Sure. And just so nobody asked me for medical advice, I'm not actually a physician. I'm an epidemiologist researcher, um, so sure. I can't prescribe anything. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I have never seen in my career, and I've been doing this for, you know, close to 20 years, um, a situation where a public health matter has become so politicized, where, um, you know, we see uh, decisions being made that are really counter to the health, security, and, you know, economic prosperity of, of the American people. Um, this is something that we have to get a handle on as a nation because we are not going to be able to move on with our lives. We are not going to be able to feel safe and restore our economy unless we tackle this uh, epidemic. And unfortunately, I think in states where you've had inconsistent messaging or at worst, um, you know, really uh, detrimental messaging about this virus, you know, they're, they're, they're now absolutely struggling. And um, I, in my view, that's one of the reasons why this country has, uh, you know, had the, an epidemic grow to the size that ours has, where other countries have been able to bring it under control much more quickly. We talked about uh, at the beginning uh, of this conversation, a lot of misinformation. And I think there are a lot of people out there who believe like, you know, you had touched upon um, that there are a lot of false positives with uh, regard to the test. Can you speak briefly to to our, our listeners and viewers as to why is it so important to have testing? I mean, what information do you get from testing uh, in addition to, you know, who's positive and negative and, and how that helps with trying to combat this virus in the, in the future and going forward? Right. So testing, I think it's important for people to recognize is, I mean, when you say that word, it sounds like um, something that you went through in school, which maybe wasn't pleasant. But really what we're talking about is diagnosing infection. So we can't start the process of trying to stop the transmission of this virus unless we know who has it and who doesn't. And that's really what testing does. Um, I think the challenge with this virus is that we are testing in a way that we um, don't typically do for a lot of viruses. And that's because this virus is behaving quite differently than other viruses in the sense that we have discovered that you can have it, 
not have any symptoms, and yet still be able to pass it on to other people. So that requires testing people who may feel fine. And that's unusual um, in, in medicine, and it's um, you know somewhat unusual in public health. And so I um, truthfully do not worry about false positives. Um, they're very, very rare. Mm-hmm. I think there has been a perception that some of the tests that we use are so sensitive that perhaps they are picking up people after they're no longer contagious. But it doesn't mean that when somebody tests positive that we know exactly where in that cycle they are. They may be just about to become contagious or they may have been contagious several Mm -hmm. weeks ago and we missed the opportunity. And that's admittedly a challenge. But I think given the size of the epidemic and what's at stake here, we'd rather err on the side of finding people who may be possibly past their contagious period and have them stay home for you know, a period of time until we know for sure they're not contagious, then to, um, to to not count them. I think the bigger problem is that we are not doing enough testing to find all of the infections that are out there. And that's why this virus continues to circulate and continues to, you know, put people in the hospital and continues to kill people and why we haven't been able to return to normal life, because we are still missing many more infections. And we've allowed this uh, epidemic to grow at such a staggeringly fast rate. I mean, you know, we talk about flattening the curve. What we're seeing in the United States now is case growth to the point where the curve is the curve is almost vertical. And that's just a really, you know, stunning situation to be in. I'm just gonna mention three countries. There are more, just three off the top of my head, New Zealand, South Korea, Vietnam, who have returned to normal and, and their life has returned to normal. Uh, do you feel that testing, in addition to other efforts, uh, differentiate them uh, from us? And uh, one of the reasons that we're not back to normal life as we knew it before COVID and they are. Yeah, I mean, the, so testing has certainly played a role in all three of those countries. I think South Korea um, probably gets the most credit for doing the most amount of testing out of the three. Um, but what those other countries have also done has been the the follow up. And that's really where the U.S. has struggled. So as I said, you know, testing is just diagnosing infection. In order for that test to have an impact, we need to do something about it. And that we need to make sure that someone who tests positive can isolate at home until they're no longer contagious so they don't spread it to anybody else. And then we need to figure out who they may have exposed prior to finding out that they're positive, find those people and tell them, you know, you're exposed to COVID, you might possibly be infected yourself, you need to stay home until we know for sure you're not contagious so that you don't spread it. That's called contact tracing. And if um, if somebody has to stay home and we don't know for sure if they're infected, that's called quarantine. So with isolation and quarantine, um, we can hopefully stop the chain of transmission of this virus. And that's really where we've struggled where those other countries have not. We're going to take a quick break. Sorry to interrupt you, doctor, on uh, time. We'll be right back and get more on the other side. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. CDC is meeting, uh, met today, actually, to advise governors as to who should get the vaccines. And first, we have with us Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering and the Department of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Follow her on Twitter at Jennifer Nuzzo, N-U-Z-Z-O. Dr. Nuzzo, thank you for holding. Welcome back. I apologize for interrupting you before um, our break. We are up against a hard break and a time crunch. Please finish what you were saying before I move on to the next question. Ah, 
I forgot what I was in the middle of saying, but um, I think we were just talking. We about- were talking about testing in other countries in South Korea, and you know things they did in addition to the testing. Yeah. So one of the the, the factors that I think we haven't yet um, addressed as a nation is removing the disincentives um, for testing and being able to comply with public health recommendations. Um, you know, it stands to reason if you're feeling well and if testing positive um, means that you can't show up to work for a couple of weeks and not earn income, um, you know, it's, it's a really terrible situation to put people in where they have to choose between feeding their family and, um, you know, complying with public health recommendations. And other countries have, uh, you know, found a way to support people uh, who have to either isolate because they're sick or quarantine because they've been exposed to a case. And that's just something that we haven't yet addressed. And, you know, we've really not helped people through this pandemic in terms of economic support that is so critical for tackling the, the virus, um, you know, to, to remove the disincentives to comply with public health recommendations. Doctor, um, you are an epidemiologist, so you do know viruses, you know germs, you know diseases. Um, you don't need to treat patients. As a matter of fact, in the lab, uh, that data is used by doctors uh, to treat patients going forward. Um, ju- just some things out there. People are still saying, you know, they don't understand the big deal uh, with covid it, you know, the flu kills more. The flu is just as or more dangerous. Can can you just briefly in layperson terms explain the difference between the flu and COVID so people understand the difference in the severity? Yeah. So what we've seen from this virus is that the, the toll, just the numbers of hospitalizations and deaths have far exceeded anything that we ever see in seasonal flu. It's far exceeded what we saw in the last uh, flu pandemic, which occurred in, in 2009. Um, the other thing is that we have more tools for influenza that we don't really have for this virus. Testing was never really constrained for influenza. We have a vaccine and you know, hopefully we'll have one soon for, for COVID-19, but it'll be quite some time before people you know, can access it. So um, flu is a, a different situation. It's a serious situation. And if anyone hasn't yet gotten their flu shot, please do get one now. Um, but uh, this virus um, has really exceeded, you know, anything that we've seen in, in modern times from, from an influenza virus, um, from a, a seasonal influenza virus. So um, it's unfortunately a wrong comparison to make. And we've since, you know, kind of blown past what we see with, with influenza. So, speaking of, uh, the, you know, COVID-19 and things that have come up, here are just some things I've heard. I'm not in the medical community. Uh, people, uh, you know, with a vitamin D, D deficiency uh, might be, uh, and my son has that, so of course my ears, you know, pop up. Uh, you know, people who are Southeast Asian, husband's Indian, my son was born in Pakistan, <laughs> you know, my ears pop up. Uh, but men, uh, more than women. Uh, th- then today it came out that it, it doesn't affect people with asthma the way that they, they thought. And uh, once again, you know, this is, uh, this is very fluid. Um, is any of this information starting to, you know, have, you know, those of you in research, uh, you know, like yourself, you know, say, aha, we're not at an aha moment, are we, with COVID yet? Well, we've learned a lot about this virus so far. I mean, really, the, the pace of scientific discovery for this virus has been extraordinary to the point where we're talking about the potential imminent um 
you know, approval of a vaccine um, for a virus that we didn't know existed this time last year. Um, so we have learned a lot. It's just this is how science works. It's um, incremental and you learn something and then you learn something else that maybe makes you feel a little bit uncertain about what you just learned. And then over time, you, you gain a better understanding. So I think of the things that you have identified, those are observations, um, whether they're, you know, causality, we still have to understand, um, you know, sometimes when you see that certain groups are affected more than others, um, that's sometimes biological, but it's also sometimes a lot. Uh, frequently, in, in in my experience, um, sociological, uh, just that we don't all have the same uh, patterns and, and exposures. Um, so we really have to sort that out. Um, vitamin D has been interesting, um, and I think, um, you know, it's um, the, the science is not 100% uh, settled, but it's, you know, interesting enough to think that maybe it's, it's worth supplementing um, if you're concerned about your vitamin D levels, but, you know, certainly talk to a, a physician to make sure that that's appropriate for you. Um, but, you know, this is this is something with science. I think there are a number of things about this virus that we didn't quite appreciate at the beginning. Um, for instance, uh, the, that we'd all be wearing masks. That wasn't something that I think a lot of people understood. I definitely fell in the skeptics camp in, initially, um, but I have since seen much more compelling data. And frankly, if it comes down to wearing a mask and, um, or being able to leave my house uh, from time to time, I, I choose to wear the mask. So. Um, you know, the, this is this is how science works, and um, I have really been impressed by how much the scientific community has come together to try mm -hmm. to understand this virus in a really extraordinary amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. It normally takes years, right, to have a, a vaccine developed and you know go through trials, and of course. Uh, that, you know, that's something else. When you have a vaccine, you're going to be having a certain amount of COVID, the virus, you know, injected in you. And that scares the living, you know, what out of people. Um, with, with, with regard to masks um, and uh, there's so much to talk about with the, the, the you know, the, the, how fluid uh, that this virus is. Do you, I, and I again, I asked my husband this. How long do you think we'll be wearing masks? And I say that because I think a lot of people have this idea that next year or in March or once we all get the vaccine, that life is going to go back to normal. But that, that's probably not accurate because one, not everyone's going to get the vaccine. Two, um, it's going to take a while uh, for, and there's going to be people getting infected who don't you know, have the vaccine. And it's there's not 100 percent success rate uh, with the vaccine. As we know, you can get the flu after getting a flu shot. Uh, how long will we be wearing masks? When does life as normal begin again? So I can't easily ask that question, but I can tell you it's not going to be soon. And no. one of the reasons why I can't answer that question is what we don't yet know about this vaccine. I mean, aside from the very real issues of um, how many doses we'll have and who will get it when and, and how, how the whole distribution uh, campaign will unfold. And I think there are a lot of reasons to be, um, you know, maybe a bit sanguine about how quickly that will all happen just because, you know, not the least of which is that's state and local health departments haven't gotten the money that they've requested in order to help them with those distribution plans. But, um, you know, aside from those very operational issues, there still is the scientific question of whether the getting vaccinated will prevent you from getting infected. And that's really important because um, what we do know is that it seems to be pretty good at preventing people from getting clinical disease, meaning getting sick where they will have symptoms. But it's still potentially possible that they could become infected and transmit that virus to others. And if that's the case, then that's going to necessitate the need for, for masks and social distancing and all the other measures that you know we've been employing to try to reduce the spread of this virus. I think that's not to you know downplay that having a vaccine that could prevent people from becoming clinically ill and 
be hospitalized or die would be an enormous asset that we don't yet have. Um, but we don't yet know if it's going to help uh, reduce transmission. Um, let's, you know, we have to wait and see, unfortunately, before we'll, we'll know that. CDC uh, today meeting and coming out with recommendations and guidelines. Uh, what we're hearing they're going to tell governors are the first two phases of who would get the vaccine are um, those who are living in assisted or living in long-term uh, care, like nursing home facilities and healthcare workers. That would be one A. One B would be essential workers and the elderly. Any opinion or thoughts onto that idea? Those all sound really reasonable. I mean, I think there have been the other element of addressing some of the racial and ethnic disparities and just knowing that not all communities have been hit as, you know, similarly with this virus. Um, but I think those those categories make a lot of sense. Um, certainly, uh, you know, doctors and nurses and healthcare workers who are on the front line and have a high level of exposure to this virus and who, frankly, we owe our debt of gratitude Absolutely. for their bravery. Um, long-term care facilities, uh, you know, I mean, when, when outbreaks happen in long-term care facilities, they could be enough just to take over an entire health system with, with the, with the, the infections and, and serious illnesses. So those all make sense. And certainly our essential workers who are getting up every day and, you know, instead of like me having a Zoom meeting, they're powering society. Um, you know, that it stands to reason that given those exposures that they'll you know, likely experience that they should also be towards the front of the line. Absolutely. Last word, 60 seconds, just a few sentences. It's, uh, it's yours, doctor. These are really difficult times heading into the holidays. And I know, you know, you probably heard a lot of uh, concern about traveling and gathering uh, for Thanksgiving. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people did, but there's more holidays to come. And we just really urge people, this is the time to stay home as much as possible if you can. Uh, the, the cases and hospitalizations are accelerating, and this is not an overstatement. Um, I know everybody's tired. I'm tired, too. But unfortunately, right. the virus is still with us. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, my, my husband got a call the other day going to stop the non, uh, non-emergency surgeries again, the elective surgeries. Thank you, doctor. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, she's part of their COVID-19 testing insights initiative. Follow her, please, on Twitter at Jennifer Nuzzo, N-U-Z-Z-O. Thank you, Dr. Nuzzo. I'm Leslie Marshall. We'll be back with you in a couple of days. season, remember the families who've lost loved ones to COVID-19. Don't risk losing your loved ones. Stay vigilant, make smart choices, avoid indoor gatherings, and wear a mask. Spread hope, not COVID. For tips, visit michigan.gov slash holiday 2020. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Some call it insight. Others call it vision. At Pershing, we call it perspective. A perspective you'll benefit from, from a custodian you can rely on. One who can help navigate the big picture and whose products give you a competitive edge. One who considers everything. What will help you succeed today and tomorrow? Open yourself to a new perspective and open the possibilities. Consider everything. BNY Mellon Pershing. Learn more at pershing.com slash go independent. Pershing Advisor Solutions, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC.